Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up, conversation with Susan Kane. She's the author of Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. She's a panelist to tomorrow's Connecticut Forum on the Science of Our Minds, which I'll be moderating. Also, a celebration of the life and music of the legendary Connecticut musician Thomas Chapin is happening this weekend. We'll revisit a conversation we had about him from last year's Litchfield Jazz Festival. But first, public television stations are bracing for life after Downton Abbey. The series finale of the popular TV show airs Sunday night, but that's not the only change facing public TV stations. The Federal Communications Commission, or FCC, is facilitating a so-called spectrum auction to free up space on the public airwaves. Joining us to tell us more is Drew Sefton. She's senior editor for Current. This is not the Hartford Current, but instead the news outlet for and about public media. She joins us today from the studios of WAMU in Washington, D.C. Drew, welcome to Where We Live. Thank you. Before we get to the auction part of this, why don't you explain the concept of the spectrum to us? Oh, gosh. (laughs) The spectrum are these little waves that float around that um, so many things are hooked into. We need spectrum just to do a lot of things in our daily lives. Um, You know, TV and radio go across spectrum waves. Uh, Your um, garage door opener, there's there's medical, medical equipment that needs it. Uh, so it's it's those are waves floating around out there that that these things need to travel over. And of course, we get our television, or for many many years, we only got our television that way. We get our radio signals that way. As you say, it's used for for so many other things. Who owns this spectrum anyway? Well, it, it's interesting. The FCC uh, governs the spectrum, but a lot of people feel that the American people kind of own the spectrum, and especially when it comes to uh, public television and radio stations, they're kind of stewards of that spectrum for their communities, and so they um, are responsible for um, doing community-oriented programming and things like that over the spectrum. So there's public uh, TV stations, but then there's also commercial TV stations. Is exactly, is the spectrum yeah. that they own different than the one that, say, our CPTV has? No, it's all it's all the same spectrum, and uh, the FCC considers it the same. There's there's special set asides for uh, the public spectrum, the non commercial spectrum, but uh, as far as this auction goes that we're going to be talking about, the FCC considers commercial and non commercial to be just the same. It's just spectrum. And, and you talked about set asides. Maybe you can explain too for us how it was decided who would be able to use different parts of the spectrum. I mean, how was this uh, initially allotted to people? That that was um, years ago. I believe it was the Public Broadcasting Act way back in the 60s that first set it aside because basically um, the federal government decided that with commercial broadcasting that was, you know, becoming a lot more ubiquitous, they thought it would be nice to have a set-aside to have non-commercial 
uh, broadcasting included. And so in each market, there's supposed to be a little spectrum set aside for uh, non-commercial broadcasters, otherwise known as public broadcasters. Okay, so years ago when this was all done, the, the spectrum that we used was, was somewhat limited. And now, as you say, it's used for so many things, including our cell phones and all this data transmission. And we're, we're up against a spectrum crunch. How long have we known that there's a, a crunch coming, Drew? <laughs> It's been a little while because um, the the problem is, well, it's not really a problem. It's a wonderful thing that we all have these devices that can do all kinds of different things, you know, iPads, iPhones, um, tablets, things like that. And those also use spectrum. But the thing is, consumers are buying more and more and more of those. And so they need more and more and more spectrum to, um, you know, to communicate with each other and, and things like that. And so the broadcast part of the spectrum, um, if you think about it, uh, a lot more people are uh, using their media on their uh, mobile devices. And so the broadcast over the air spectrum, uh, the FCC looked at that and said, hmm, well, maybe we should uh, take some of that spectrum and move it over to the wireless spectrum just to, to ease this spectrum crunch that you're talking about. We're talking with Drew Sefton, who's a senior editor for Current. That's not the Hartford Current, but Current is a news outlet for uh, and about public media. She joins us today from the studios of WAMU at American University, which is affiliated with uh, Current newspaper. So, okay, we've got this spectrum crunch, and now there's going to be an FCC spectrum auction in March. It starts with a reverse auction. My goodness, this is confusing already. How does that work, Drew? Well, um, uh, first stations have to decide whether or not they want to take part in the auction. This is a voluntary auction, and so stations have to decide um, whether they're going to be part of it. The FCC issued uh, opening bids back last October uh, as to what they think uh, station spectrum could be worth. Those are huge. Some of those are, are huge, multiple million, multiple hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, and so stations are looking at that very carefully. And what they'll do is the FCC has to look at how much spectrum it needs across the country. Uh, There are some markets where they don't need spectrum, like Las Vegas is a market that they've already told the stations there, we don't need any spectrum there. It's anticipated that, um, that we need the most spectrum in the auction on the east and west coasts. So that's where uh, a lot of a lot of the action is going to be. But basically, uh, a station decides if they're going to be in it. And then they have to kind of have in their mind what their um, bottom bid would be because it's a reverse auction. The FCC is going to come to them and say, okay, um, and, and, and the bids are going to go down instead of going up like in a regular auction. And so um, stations have to know what their bottom line is. And then once that's hit, then they'll be dropping out. And so basically as stations drop out, whoever is left is the, the spectrum that the FCC will buy. And then, and then the FCC will turn around and offer that spectrum to wireless providers and, um, yeah, for, for the wireless devices. Okay, so the FCC, not surprisingly, is acting as kind of the, the middleman here. What does the FCC stand to make out of the spectrum auction? Well, it's not supposed to make any, uh, you know, revenues or profits. What it's trying to do is make enough to have uh, 
$1.75 billion left because once we get through the auction and once everything is decided and the wireless companies come in and know where their spectrum is going to be, then we have to go through a phase called repacking. And that means that the spectrum is going to be shuffled around and repacked more efficiently. Uh, and, and that's going to take that's going to take a lot of work because stations actually are going to have to switch channels. They're going to have to climb up on their towers and pull down antennas and, and you know, physically do work to switch these channels over. And so this $1.7 billion that they're going to make through the auction has been set aside to go toward that work and then to also go toward uh, educating consumers because you're going to have to tell everybody, okay, these channels are changing and here's why and here's how to reset things. And, you know, so that's that's how they're going to handle that. Of, of course, you know, years ago before cable, this would have been an enormous deal, right? Everyone was mm-hmm. trying to align themselves around their position on the dial. Now, maybe not so much. I mean, how big an impact are stations expecting to see from this, Drew, given the fact that so many Americans get their uh, TV from cable and, you know, it might be Channel 8, but they're probably watching it on cable channel 132? Well, the whole aspect of over the air, which is what we're talking about here, is an important part of this. Because, yeah, you're right, a lot of people, probably the majority of people, watch television on cable. However, there's 13 to 15 percent of people across the nation that still get it over the air, over their antenna, and it's free. And that's important, especially to public broadcasting, because those are the households that um, PBS really wants to reach, especially with with its uh, children's educational programming, because part of the core mission of PBS is to help those specific children get ready for school, get ready to, you know, for their education. So they have a lot of very, very educational preschool programming. And so, yeah, it's there are people that still watch over-the-air television. And as I said, a lot of them just can't afford cable. So it's very important to keep them in mind, too. Is it possible that out of all this, there may be pockets of the country, places where, because of this repacking or because of this auction, that people who maybe did rely on over-the-air television to show their kids great programs on public TV, that they won't be able to get it anymore for free? Yeah, that's one of the things that the Corporation for Public Broadcasting is very concerned about. That's that's the uh, it's a nonprofit, taxpayer funded corporation that uh, that's where the federal money comes through that goes to all the public broadcasting stations. And CPB, as it's known, did a uh, white paper on looking at just that problem. And they identified, I think there's, you know, up to 15 or so markets where they're concerned about this, where this would create, they call it, you know, white areas where people couldn't get that. And so that is something that that they're looking at and they're working with stations to kind of raise awareness because uh, CPB and PBS, another one of their core missions is to make sure that every American household, if possible, receives free public television because, you know, it's commercial free, it's highly educational, it's very, you know, high quality programming. And so, yeah, they're keeping an eye on that. But it's complicated because every station within public broadcasting is an independent entity. Some are licensed to communities, some are licensed to universities, some are licensed to states. 
and they all have to make their own decision regarding the spectrum. So CPB and PBS really can't go to them and say, oh, don't sell off your spectrum. You know, you're, you're going to create this. But they can at least educate them and say, look, if you do, this is, you know, what might happen. So, yeah, that's, that's a big issue out there. But part of the promise of this, of course, too, is that public stations might be able to sell some of the spectrum and then be able to plow it back into programming and actually balance the books. That might be an overall uh, positive, Drew, for, for public TV? Yeah. Well, um, th- one, of th- one of the options is called channel sharing. And what a station can do, it, it might, and, and, and it can be a public station and a commercial station that can do this, Two stations might get together and say, look, we can each sell a bit of spectrum, come together, um, share a channel of spectrum, and then we can, you know, make a bit of money with the spectrum that we do sell. And so we're seeing um, a couple of those partnerships bubbling up. And, yeah, that would kind of be the best of both worlds because they would make a bit of money, which they can then, you know, use for programming, but they would still be on the air. The tricky thing is if a station chooses to just relinquish all its spectrum – that's it. It doesn't have a broadcast license anymore. And so um, there, there are a couple stations we've heard of that are thinking of doing that and just being um, Internet-only stations. And so it would still, you know, they would still produce content, but it would just be on, you know, web-based devices, which is where people could find it not over the air. Overall, is this seen within the world of public broadcasting as a scary thing that could lead to enormous upheaval and change or as something that holds a lot of promise, a way to to maybe rethink the public broadcasting mission? I think I've been covering this for several years now, and I'd I'd say more the former uh, because, all right, the thing is this, if public broadcasting stations decide to do this and and if they relinquish spectrum and if that brings millions of dollars into public broadcasting that creates another issue because there will be certain stations that have this huge amount of money and other stations don't so that would you know make them very unequal plus it would be very difficult for public broadcasting to go to capitol hill and say, you know, we really count on federal funding to make public broadcasting happen because the folks on Capitol Hill would say, what? You just made tens <laughs> of millions of dollars in this spectrum auction thing. You don't need our help anymore. And so it's a lot, and a lot of this is still such an unknown. You know, people, even the experts you ask, they'll say, we just don't know because this has never been done before. We don't know how this is going to work. We don't know how long it's going to take. We don't know how many rounds of auction there will be. We don't know what the prices will end up being. So, uh, yeah, whenever you get into a situation where there's a lot of unknowns, I'd say the anxiety kind of outweighs the, you know, excitement about it. Now, I should say that you've reported on our station, our parent company, Connecticut Public Broadcasting Network, uh, being part of this and actually um, being one of a few stations that's chosen to work with spectrum speculators. What can you tell us about what CPTV, Connecticut Public Broadcasting, is doing? Yeah, that's very interesting. They decided, as you said, to work with a spectrum speculator. Those are companies that started approaching stations um, you know, back over the last year or two, and saying, we know this spectrum auction is coming up. Uh, we know your spectrum is valuable. Uh, we will give you money up front against, you know, what we think you could make on this, and you will have the money now. 
and you know in in promise to when the spectrum auction comes then you know we'll be able to auction it off and make the money from that so uh, again those deals are out there but they're very the stations and the spectrum speculators are very secretive about it those are you know closed business deals we poked around in some um you know documents and couldn't find uh, how much that deal was worth but we have a feeling that um, that station might have settled for a little bit less than what it could have gotten in the auction. Because at that point, this was done long enough ago that, um, you know, we they weren't really certain how the auction would play out. So, But I don't know. Again, who's to say? You know, we, we just really don't know what the, what the final, um, the final cash payouts are going to be. A uh, last thing for you, Drew, and it goes back to actually something that connects to us here in Connecticut um, some time ago when when Chris Dodd wasn't working for the motion picture industry and he was still a U.S. senator. He had introduced legislation um, to use uh, money from auctions like this to improve telecom infrastructure. The the notion is that if this is a, a public airwave and we're going to in any way make money off of it back through the federal government, that we should set aside some of that money to be able to beef up our telecom infrastructure so that we really can be competitive in the future. That legislation didn't really go anywhere. Are other people talking about that? I mean, should this money in some way be plowed back into making us more robust in, into the future with all the technology that's coming? Yeah, and that that was uh, that was an issue that was put forward, and it was rejected. There was another idea on the public broadcasting side, where they wanted to use the uh, auction proceeds to come up with a, um, a public media trust fund that would be specifically to bolster, you know, the the non commercial broadcasting, and that was rejected as well. I don't know why. I mean, that sounds like such a great common sense thing to do. I I don't know why that never got any traction. The way that this is set up, uh, as I said, they're not supposed to make a lot of profit other than this $1.75 billion. But if they do end up making profit, the way the law is written is it will go toward paying down the national debt. And so that's someone on Capitol Hill, that's what they decided to do with this. So... That's how it went. Uh, that's the, the ultimate drop in a bucket. So I guess the last yeah, thing for yeah. you, Drew, is um, I'm not, I, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but it just it feels to me like we're going to be using more and more spectrum for our everyday lives. I mean, for goodness sakes, we're now talking through our smartphones to our fridges and our toasters. I mean, do, do we see the possibility of another type of spectrum auction coming down the pike very, very soon because— Lord knows people will be getting television in a in a way that isn't the way it is right now and will have more need for spectrum. So are we going to see another one of these, I don't know, five, ten years down the road? Yeah, you would think, but but the FCC has said we think this should do it. <laughs> so at least for now, you know, once we get through this, this will give wireless providers enough wiggle room that they'll be able to, you know, keep keep adding those wonderful devices, like you said, so we can keep talking to our refrigerators and toasters. I, I, I suppose that we'll be needing to do that. Drew Sefton is senior editor for Current. That's a news outlet for and about public media. It's uh, housed at American University in Washington. She joined us there from the studios of WAMU. Drew, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Happy to do it. Coming up, we'll listen back to a conversation about the life and music of Connecticut saxophonist Thomas Chapin. He's being celebrated by former bandmates, family, and friends at Real Artways this Sunday. 
Coming up later, I'll talk with Susan Kane about introverts. She's coming to the Connecticut Forum for a discussion I'll be moderating about the brain. You can join our conversation on our website. Go to wnpr.org slash where we live, or you can go to Facebook and Twitter at where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up, conversation with author Susan Cain about being an introvert in an extroverted world. We'll also check in with a co-founder of a unique fitness center in Connecticut that works with people on the autism spectrum. But we're going to start with a tribute to a musician who is being honored at Real Artways in Hartford on Sunday. Thomas Chapin was one of the most brilliant, creative, powerful musicians I ever met. He grew up right here in Connecticut. He trained at the Hart School with Jackie McLean, and he played in a wild downtown music scene in the late 1980s and early 90s in New York. He toured with Lionel Hampton, and he touched many people here with his energy and his love of life. He gave me two of my greatest musical memories. One was playing his alto sax about five inches from my face in the tiny downstairs room at Maine and Hopewell in Glastonbury. For years, it was a stopover for musicians going between Boston and New York. Again, he wowed us at a tribute concert for him as he was dying of leukemia at the young age of 41. At Cheney Hall in Manchester, his hometown, he played music with dozens of his friends. He died just a few days later. My description of his music cannot do it justice. We're going to go back and listen to a conversation I had with a few of his close friends at last year's Litchfield Jazz Festival. Mario Pavone is a bassist, a composer, and a band leader who's joined us in the program before, as has Peter McCarran, who's a trombonist and composer. Stephanie Castillo is an Emmy-winning independent filmmaker and Thomas's sister-in-law. Her recent project is an art film called Thomas Chapin Nightbird Song. It's being screened at Real Artways Sunday afternoon, followed by a tribute concert. Here's Stephanie from our conversation last summer, talking about how she remembered her iconic relative. Well, it's funny because I knew him as my brother-in-law. I didn't know him as a jazz artist. I knew he played jazz. So like many people, I'm asking, who is this guy? And uh, I found out actually who he really was by making the film. But before that, it was an article, an obituary in the New York Times that clued me in. It's like, wow, this guy's somebody. I had no idea. You know, I knew he played jazz. He was my sister's husband, played jazz, and I saw him play a couple of times, but I was not a big jazz fan. And so I enjoyed Thomas. I liked him a lot, but I wasn't really interested in his music. But I felt as a documentary filmmaker for the last 30 years, I'm always looking for a good story, a great story. And I knew that perhaps one day I might tell that story. So four years ago, I decided it was time before the memories of everybody fades, you know, and Thomas is forgotten. Mm. So I've been working on this for four years now. And, and I want to talk to you more about that. It is so interesting to know someone who we know as a musician, yeah. uh, who you knew as, as, as a man, which is, which is so interesting. Mario, when did you first meet Thomas Chapin? I met him in 1980 at Bushnell Park. He was playing in a Mingus tribute uh, conducted by Paul Jeffries, who was a big influence and was at Duke subsequent to that and where the Thomas Chapin files are now. And uh, it was a mixture of um, Connecticut musicians and New York musicians. Peter was among them in the trombone section. And Thomas was there, and this uh, local penis woman took me there. And every time Thomas took up, stood up the solo, the crowd went crazy. I went crazy. And, uh, and this just happened all the time. I met him just after that, and subsequent, um, you know, 
following that, we started our relationship for 20 years. You and others tell the story of, of that night in Bushnell Park in, in the film, and it really is it's clearly quite yeah. a memory for a lot of people to be introduced to an artist in that way. Yeah, it is. He was, he was just amazing. He, he just got up and, uh, you know, put as much information and emotion into each chorus of the piece as normal player puts in two choruses. It was just concentrated and emotional and brilliant. Yeah, and, and a lot of energy, and I'm sure this is what you found as you watched all of these hours of concert videos, and there's some amazing concert videos that I, even as a, as a fan of his music, have never seen, Stephanie. Um, there is so much energy, so much life in the way he played. And I think that's what everybody that's played with him or met him say about him. His energy was just extraordinary. Yeah. When did you meet him, Peter? Um, I met him in the Hartford uh, club scene a few years before the concert at Bushnell Park. And um, he was amazing. He would come in to sit in on somebody's gig, and he couldn't wait to get his horn out. And as soon as he got it out, the, the knowledge he had was, you know, astounding. But um, his spirit was so huge, he would just fill the room. And it's someone you wanted to be around. I'm wondering, uh, Stephanie, if you can talk a little bit about, about where you found some of this concert footage, because... He played a style of music. We're going to listen to some of his music uh, in just a moment. That you know, it was not always embraced by the mainstream. He played some very mainstream jazz, but a lot of the music that he recorded with Mario Pavone, many people might consider difficult, a little bit outside. And so you were able to find, I'm sure, quite rare performances to put on this movie. By the way, I, I when I talk to people about the way he played, I say it, a high level of jazz. <laughs> because to the average year, it's very hard to kind of get used to listening to this level of jazz that he was playing at. So I said, well, it's a high level, and you've got to acclimate your ears, you know, listen to it a couple times, your brain will, will start to grasp it, and you'll, you know, enjoy it more. So I found this stuff mostly from Thomas himself. He seemed to collect... Uh, any anything that anybody recorded. So he had a, 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 a fairly large catalog of videotapes and audio tapes going back to high school, to Andover, when he was 15 years old. I had audio recordings that he kept, and all of his stuff is uh, down in Duke University in the archives. So I went down there and spent 10 days looking through his stuff, I ordered uh, the films and the videos that were there. Terry, his wife, had some material. Uh, and then his fans. Mm. Uh, his fans from Connecticut were recording him. And they told me, hey, I've got a video of Thomas, or I've, I've been taped, I've got eight hours. I mean, it was just incredible. <laughs> uh, you know, in just a moment, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the trio that he played uh, in with Mario Pavone. It's actually listened to a little bit of music from that trio. Uh, I'll see if Mario can actually pick this out. This is a, a tune called Italy.
That's Thomas Chapin and his trio playing in Newport in 1993. I'm here with one of the members of that trio, Mario Pavone. Do you remember that recording, Mario? I do. I remember that day vividly. It was one. It was a great, great day. Beautiful day out in uh, uh, Newport Festival. Ten or twelve thousand people out there. <laughs> I, and this is a great example. Italy. This piece, Italy, is an iconic piece for for, for Chapin. Yeah. He he didn't write it after the country. He wrote it after an Indian food. Uh, a kind of bread, I think, or something. And, uh, it's I-D-D-L-Y. I-D-D-L-Y. Yeah. And it demonstrates what I've always said, that uh, when he left uh, after his storied career with Lionel Hampton, uh, big band, he, he, and he talked to me about forming this trio. Uh, we started rehearsing, and for seven or eight years, we had an incredible run, meteoric rise all over the world. And he wrote big band music for trio. I've always said this. He had a way of structuring the bass parts, the drum parts, uh, first with Steve Johns and subsequently with Mike Serene. And clearly this is the best example of it, yeah. Yeah, and it's in, in that trio, it, it really had this incredibly tight, interesting sound that was different than, I mean, other jazz bands at the time. It, you say it was sort of like a big band in a trio format, but in some ways in, in Stephanie's film, there's a sense that there's a, almost like a rock band feel to it, too. Absolutely. It's different than, you know, what you would think of as a normal jazz trio, right? Yeah. You know, Thomas was incredibly trained, a virtuoso player with great knowledge, uh, trained in Andover, trained at, uh, from Kenny Barron and, and James Spaulding and Ray Drummond and people like that, Jackie McLean, of course, in Hartford. And, but also had this desire when he left, he said, I'm going left on this. I'm doing my own music and I'm going left. And... Um, you know, talk about difficulty in avant-garde music. I never, I felt the same way entering into this music. I've felt this way most of my career, but, but Thomas was right. We had no trouble feeling this great empathy from the audience, uh, even though it was forward-leaning, somewhat difficult, uh, definitely hard-hitting, maybe even rock-flavored for, for jazz music. It was, uh, but it was very accessible to the people, the, the way Thomas structured it. What is it that you hear in, in Thomas's music, Peter? What, what, what makes it special to you coming from a musician's point of view? Uh, what makes it special to me is um, he was so um, well-versed in the tradition of the music, but at any moment he could just abandon it and just go totally out on a limb. And it was extraordinary to play with him because of that because you never knew what was going to happen. When I first heard the trio, I remember Mario had come home from the knitting factory, uh, and I went over to his house the next day, and we were sitting on his porch listening. And actually, it was Faron Aklov on drums, the first drummer of the trio. And I was just knocked out when I heard it, because it sounded like a big band to me. And it was only three people. I couldn't believe how big it, the sound was, and I knew that he had hit on something when I first heard that. But it was just so exciting to hear Thomas, um, because of all those factors, the, the, the risk he would take, but also the fact that he knew the music so well, the tradition. Let's actually listen to a little bit of another track, and this is one that I think that Mario, you had, you had uh, suggested for us. It's a, it's a song called Sky Piece.
That's beautiful sky piece by the late Thomas Chapin. It's a beautiful uh, composition, Mario, and it's it gets me to one thing I wanted to ask you about with him too. Is is we've been talking about him as a saxophonist, of course. He was a gorgeous flute player, uh, and in, in many ways that showed two sides of his personality. Right? Yeah. He was he was so aggressive at times playing the saxophone, but he was so lyrical playing the flute. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One of his most gorgeous pieces, sky piece, and. Uh, Unusual, usually tenor saxophone players play flute, but alto and flute was his tune. He was a virtuoso on both. The great James Spaulding at Rutgers was a big influence on him in this regard, great blue note artist. After our rise as a trio, he would say, well, what's next? Okay, trio plus brass. A year later, trio plus strings, string quartet. So he had he, endless ideas. There's woodwind music that's un played that that is that I have and, and his wife Terry has that hopefully we will get to in the future uh, Stephanie we've been talking an awful lot about the music one of the, the really interesting parts of the story is his rootedness in Connecticut obviously it's a guy who toured the world he lived in New York near the end of his life but he was really from Connecticut and he, right. he was someone who's who's not only well known here but his family was really a part of, right. of Connecticut that's right Manchester father worked for United Technologies uh, yeah, they had three homes in Manchester. You know, I mean, they were they were there for a long time. And uh, Thomas went then went on to Andover for his uh, high school. And I don't think he's ever he ever forgot, right, Mario? It yeah. kept coming back. Always, yeah. He kept coming back. He loved he loved playing with the guys here in Connecticut. And uh, I think also in Connecticut you see that straight ahead traditional jazz side of him more. Because he loved playing that also. Yeah, yeah, and, and of course he uh, he studied with the great Jackie McLean when when he was alive teaching at the Hart, University of Hartford, the Hart School. Uh, Peter, he was such an influence on so many players, and I think you still, I mean, you hear as you listen to Thomas' saxophone recordings too, you sort of hear a little bit of that edge of the Jackie McLean sound that is mm -hmm. so well known to people. But I mean, his influence is unbelievable on so many musicians, including Thomas. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jackie was a huge influence. But as Mario pointed out, James Spaulding was, I think, even a larger influence, uh, which is interesting. Um, but anyway, back to the local, um, yeah. or the Connecticut scene. And I hate to use that word local because it's, a, it's sort of a dirty word when you talk about musicians. Because if you're local, you're not New York. But let's say Connecticut. Um, Thomas was very par much part of the New Connecticut scene, even when he was in New York. And it's really great to honor your Connecticut area musicians as well as um, people that have maybe a, a larger, um, you know, uh, following. So I just wanted to point that out. And Thomas was very much into that. You know, it's like, you know, we should buy local. Yeah. We should buy our local <laughs> produce. We should honor our local musicians. Or uh, local is, you know, in the, in the best sense of the word. I like that idea. But buy the music close to home too, Mario. Buy locally and think globally. Yeah. Think globally, yeah. yeah. There's so many great documentaries made about wonderful musicians. I just I just saw the Nina Simone documentary, which mm -hmm. is beautifully done. The Kurt Cobain documentary, mm -hmm. which is beautifully done. But these are people whose whose music is widely known, and maybe we don't know as much about their story. Right. But the idea that you're bringing uh, the music of someone who might not be as widely known to a larger audience is a wonderful thing. And and he will be more widely yeah. known because of this film. And I think these guys would agree that he needs to be known by the world because they're missing something. Yeah. In jazz, in the history of jazz, Thomas left his mark. And if you don't know who he is and what he did, you would that's a piece of jazz history, piece of jazz that's missing. 
Yeah, his, it's a great story. It's a great film, uh, Steph. He's an yeah. Emmy Award winning. But it's a great story, uh, besides being a distinctly Connecticut story. It's a great story of courage. First, the obvious one-year battle with, with, with leukemia before passing away at 40. But it's a, a great story for students of courage, of someone that came through the regular system, highly educated, highly evolved in the music, harmonically and all that stuff, and made a courageous decision to go into a different music, into a personal statement, and it took a lot of courage. And he could have, and we still were achieving the world. We were all over the world playing all the major festivals and, until him being cut down, of course. Well, I'm wondering if we can just maybe bring up the, the last piece of music, Aeolus, underneath this as, as we talk. And it's a beautiful piece of music as well. And I just wanted you to talk about th that night that I mentioned earlier. I, I My description of that, that evening at uh, Cheney Hall in Manchester couldn't, couldn't really explain what it was like to be there with 350 people many of whom knew his music and knew him personally and loved him, but uh, him standing up and playing, and this was mm. as he was very, very ill just yeah. before he died. I mean, uh, maybe you first, Mario. Well, it was, it, was, it was amazing. There is film of it uh, at Cheney Hall in Manchester, and, uh, of course, it was emotional, and you're right. It was packed to the gills, uh, 350 people, Connecticut people, New York people, North Carolina people, uh, family, friends, all the musicians, uh, both uh, nationwide and, and local. And uh, he was incredible. He had great courage, and we pretty much were backstage, and there was tears and the normal stuff, and kind of led him out to the stage. And uh, as soon as he put, picked up the bass flute to play this Aeolus, Song of the Wind, uh, God of the Wind, right, Aeolus. And uh, it was amazing, the whole place, the, the, you know. The chills and the skin was up on on 350 people. It was it was it was it was, it was an unbelievable. Yeah. yeah, talk about courage. It took tremendous courage for him to do that. He was very weak, and uh, as you yeah. said, you had to lead him out. And when he played, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. I still get emotional yeah. thinking about it. That's Peter McCarron and Mario Pavone, two men who were friends with and played with the great Thomas Chapin. We also heard from Stephanie Castillo, the sister-in-law of Thomas and director of. Thomas Chapin, Nightbird Song. The film is being screened at Real Artways Sunday afternoon, followed by a tribute concert. Find out more information about the event at realartways.org. Coming up, we'll preview this weekend's Connecticut Forum with author Susan Kane, and we'll hear from the co-founder of a fitness center targeted at people with autism. You can join the conversation online, wnpr.org slash where we live, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on Monday's show, spring is just around the corner, and with that comes gardening season. We'll have a roundtable tackling the latest trends in gardening, how to deal with pests and invasives, and we'll take your questions. WNPR's Garden Journal host, Charlie Nardozzi, will be in studio along with some other experts. Bring your gardening questions to the radio on Monday. Coming up tomorrow, I'll be moderating the Connecticut Forum on the science of our minds. The panelists are Lisa Genova, who's a neuroscientist and author of Still Alice, Dr. Keltner, who's a psychology professor and author and consultant on Pixar's great film Inside Out, which just won an Academy Award for Best Animated Feature. Also on the panel is my next guest, Susan Kane. She's the author of the best-selling book Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. 
Susan Kane, welcome to Where We Live. It is my pleasure to be here. Hi, John. Well, first of all, why don't you just explain this? I know you've been asked this a million times, but can you just explain for us quickly the difference between an extrovert and an introvert? Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I think probably a lot of your listeners might have heard already the idea that uh, it has to do with how do you get your energy, how do you recharge your batteries, and that introverts recharge their batteries by, they could be very socially skilled, but still recharge their energy by uh, being in a quieter, more solitary setting, uh, and extroverts are the opposite. And and that's true, but it's really kind of a metaphor for what's happening neurobiologically, which is that we have different nervous systems, and introverts have nervous systems that just react more to stimulation, including the stimulation of social life, and that's what makes us want to be in these quieter settings because it means our nervous systems are kind of in a state of equilibrium. Um, and, and extroverts have nervous systems that kind of need more hubbub going on around them to make them feel like they're in their sweet spot. So when we talk about um, shyness, someone who is shy and doesn't really want to take part in social settings, is that the same thing as, as introversion or is it, a, is it a piece of what being an introvert is? It, you know, it, it is different. Um, my work really is about both because culturally, from a cultural point of view, uh, there are very similar sort of implications and outcomes, but, but it is different. I mean, shyness is much more about the, um, the fear of social judgment and a kind of excessive self-consciousness and worrying about what people think of you. And uh, you, you could be an extrovert who's very shy that way, and you can be an introvert who's not at all. Um, so in practice, there are many people who are both, but not necessarily. Is something uh, changing in the way we view introversion and extroversion, even within our lifetimes, uh, your lifetime and my lifetime, because of the way the media has changed, because of the way we value certain types of of skill sets or celebrity or fame? I mean, is there actually something uh, that's maybe even biologically changing about the way introversion and extroversion work in human beings? Well, I mean, it's funny. You know, in the last, starting around 100 years ago, I would say, is when we became a culture that uh, really began to celebrate extroversion. And this was because we were moving to more of a, a corporate and sales economy where being able to manage people and make a good impression when you were doing sales was considered important. We had the rise of the cinema where having a magnetic, larger-than-life personality came to seem very important. So on the one hand, we've had that trend going for the last 100-plus years. But on the other hand, um, in the last couple decades, we've seen the rise of Silicon Valley and the rise of technology um, where we're seeing you know, a huge host of, of leaders and contributors to the culture quite introverted and are not uh, you know, not embodying that kind of larger-than-life ideal. I mean, you look at somebody like a Bill Gates and the contributions he's making, and he's a very unassuming introvert in his self-presentation, um, and there are scores of others like him. And I, I think also in the last few years, there's just been so much discussion about the topic of introversion that it's really changing, and I'm seeing it move from a... a kind of stigmatized words that you wouldn't want to associate yourself with to something that people are claiming proudly for themselves. And I think that's really encouraging. A, a last thing for you, and we've touched on some of these things already, but I guess I'm wondering what, what the 
the thing you think most people misunderstand about the idea of, of introversion? What's the thing that that we as a society maybe just just don't get? I think there's a real well, two things I'm going to say. One is I, I think people sometimes think we're talking about a real uh, small outlier segment of the population, and in fact, we're talking about 50% of the population. And it often doesn't seem that way because introverts are sent the message from such a young age that they should act more extroverted that we get very skilled at doing it. Um, so you can't always tell who's who. And then the other thing is I, I think there's a misperception of introverts as being less loving or less social somehow. And that's not so. It, it's really just a different form of being social, you know, where you want to You'd rather have that glass of wine with a close friend than go out to a big party and meet lots of new people. But it's still the same social energy. It's being directed differently. Susan Kane is author of Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. She'll be joining me on stage at the Connecticut Forum for a program called The Science of Our Minds. Some other great panelists there. Find out more at ctforum.org. I'm looking forward to this conversation, Susan. So good of you to join us, and we'll talk to you soon. That is awesome. I love talking to you, John. Thank you. Before we go, we wanted to highlight a -a one-of-a-kind fitness center here in Connecticut. There's a sold-out fundraiser this weekend for the Autism Fitness Center. Joining us to tell us a bit more about it is co-founder Adam Leapley. We decided to open a fitness center um, for individuals with ASD based on our experience with our son. And my son is also on the spectrum. And I had experienced, through exercise with my son, great improvements. So... What I did was I started researching autism and exercise on my own. I sat in with a graduate class at Southern Connecticut University to learn more about autism. Um, As a parent, I had plenty of experience, but uh, I'm not a specialist, and I wanted to learn a little more. And I reached out to the, the specialists in the field, the professionals in the field of autism, and came up with the idea of a fitness center specifically designed for individuals on the spectrum. So what do we know about the the positive impacts of of fitness and exercise on people with autism? Obviously, you've seen it in your own son, and I'm sure you've seen it with many individuals you've worked with. But but scientifically, what do we know about it? Um, So what I did witness with my son is he, as he was growing up, he had struggled with his weight, was a poor eater. And, you know, these are characteristics, unfortunately, of, of people on the spectrum. Once I got him to do consistent exercise, his anxiety decreased, um, depression decreased, his sleep improved, um, he had more confidence, and it, it was such, like, as I said, mentioned earlier, it was such a transformation. You know, there's not a lot of research out there, but the research, all the research that is out there shows that you can have lots of improvements besides physical effects from physical fitness. The question of of what an appropriate uh, facility is for children or really anybody on the autism spectrum disorder is is an important one. We've we've done conversations on our program about the proper school setting or the proper work setting. Talk about what you were looking for in a gym because I would I would just assume that the the typical place where people go to work out is not a place that's necessarily the best for someone who is autistic. The concept I came up with was let's let's build a fitness center from the ground floor that will be a nice, safe, comfortable environment for people on the spectrum, understanding 
you know, lots of their, their challenges, including sensory. We started with a, basically an empty warehouse. And from the flooring, the lighting, not having music, having specific stations with privacy screening, even the paint on the walls uh, is, is all beige. There's no bright colors and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So I worked with some specialists in the field to come up with, you know, what's the best environment for people on the spectrum. Well, Adam, before I let you go, I, I, I should ask, you know, so your place is in Orange, and we we hear about parents and, and kids all across our state, all across our region, who are, are looking for places where, whether or not it's a fitness center or some sort of a community organization where the, the needs of those on the autism spectrum are really cared for, and, and we just see it as a, as a big priority in the state, right? A lot of people are asking about this. Is this the sort of project that you think can can be replicated? Are you looking to expand? Are you talking about, you know, more of these fitness centers or partnering with others? As far as we know, we are the only one in the country, not only in Connecticut. You know, my goal is just to help as many families as possible. One of the ways we are expanding, and I think it's probably the most efficient way, is we provide adaptive PE, physical education services, um, for schools. And this way we can reach a number of students and individuals um, who, you know, we send our trainers to the schools to do the adaptive physical education. Adam Lupley is co-founder of the ASD Fitness Center. Adam, thank you so much. Congratulations on this great project. I, I wish you continued success. Thank you for having me. We've got more information about the Autism Fitness Center, this weekend's fundraiser, and some of the events that we've highlighted this hour on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. Our program is produced by Tucker Ives and Lydia Brown. Kion Wolf is our technical producer. The digital editor is Heather Brandon. And Where We Live's executive producer is Katie Tolarski. No matter what you decide to do this weekend, please have a great one. I'm John Dankosky.